Welcome to this podcast message from Kingdom Faith. Modern language and uh, abbreviated the sermons a little bit because they were quite long, even longer than the sermons I preach. Uh, and one of these is called the Almost Christian. And uh, he describes what an almost Christian is. Now, he uses the word heathen, and for those of you for whom English is not your first language, a heathen is an unbeliever, a pagan, someone who doesn't believe. Uh, in God and doesn't li therefore live anything like a Christian lifestyle but lives a worldly lifestyle. I don't know if I'll read all of it. I'll um, probably pick out some bits and pieces. But it's interesting and I'll say why it's interesting when, when I've read it. I think you'll probably see for yourself. So he says, the first thing implied in being almost a Christian is simple heathen honesty. No one should question this. By heathen honesty, I mean that honesty common heathens expect one of another. It is an honesty that many of them usually practice. The rules of honesty teach them they ought not to be unjust. They should not take their neighbor's property either by robbery or theft. They are not to oppress the poor, nor ever use extortion. They are not to cheat or overreach anyone. In all dealings, they are to defraud no one and are to and are to owe no man anything. The common heathen also agrees that some attention should be paid to truth as well as justice. As a result, they shun those who lie and call God to witness to the lie. They also disdain the slanderer of his neighbor and anyone who accuses another person falsely. Indeed, they see willful liars as a disgrace to humanity and pests of society. In addition, there is a degree of love and assistance which the almost Christians expect from each other. They expect whatever help anyone can give another they ex this extends not only in the little things which can be done without expense or effort, but also to greater needs. <clears throat> this includes feeding the hungry if they have food to spare and clothing the naked. In general, they are expected to give to any that need from the things which they do not need themselves. The first thing implied in being almost a Christian is this basic kind of heathen love. 
The second thing implied in being almost a Christian is having a form of godliness. This is the godliness which is described in the gospel of Christ, having the outside of a real Christian. So the almost Christian does nothing which the gospel forbids. He does not take the name of the Lord in vain. He does not curse, but blesses. He does not swear at all. He simply answers with a yes or a no. He keeps the Lord's day holy and does not allow either his family or guests to profane it. He avoids every word or look which might directly or indirectly lead to violating the gospel. He abstains from all idle conversation. This is the almost Christian. The result is his avoidance of all distraction, backbiting, gossiping, evil speaking, foolish talking, and jesting. He avoids all conversation which is not edifying and which grieves the Holy Spirit. This is the almost Christian. He abstains from alcohol in excess and from revelings and gluttony. He avoids as much as he can all strife and contention. He strives to live continually in peace with everyone. If he is wronged, he does not avenge himself. He never returns evil for evil. He is not a brawler or scoffer. He does not criticize the faults or infirmities of his neighbor. He does not willingly wrong, hurt, or grieve any man. In all things he speaks and acts by plain rule. Whatever you would not have done to you, do not that to another. In doing good, the almost Christian does not limit himself to cheap and easy ways of showing kindness. He works and suffers for the good of many. He strives to use all possible means to help those in need of help. In spite of the personal cost and effort, he acts with all his might. He gives this same effort, whether it be for his friends or enemies, for an evil or good person. He has no laziness when it comes to doing good to all men, both for their bodies and their souls. This almost Christian instructs the ignorant, comforts the afflicted, assures the wavering, helps the good, and reproves the wicked, corrects the wicked. He works to awaken those who are asleep spiritually. He attempts to lead all those who are seeking God into an understanding of Jesus. His purpose is to get sinners to accept the forgiveness that is in Jesus. His wish is to stir up those who are already saved through faith to lift up the gospel in all things. So we see that this almost Christian has a form of godliness. He, according to his opportunities, uses all the means of grace as often as possible. He constantly attends church 
and avoids all improper actions and appearances while there. He is not like some who do not act so properly, even though they have received the saving faith. Many of those who should know and do better act worse than the almost Christian. They come into church gazing around with listlessness or careless indifference. Sometimes they seem to be praying to God, but often are either asleep or reclined in the most convenient posture for sleep. Or, as if they believe God to be asleep, they look around and talk to another. In this manner, they give no attention to the church service. But the almost Christian cannot be accused of having only the form and not the content of religion. He is serious about his worship. He pays attention to the services. When he comes for communion, it is not in a careless manner. He attends to communion with an air, gesture, and deportment which speaks nothing else to God but, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The almost Christian also sets apart times for daily and family prayer and maintains a seriousness of behavior. In his uniform practice of outward religion, he has the form of godliness. The almost Christian has one more quality. He has sincerity. By sincerity, I mean a real inward principle of religion. It is from this inward principle that all of his actions come. So if we do not have this sincere inward religious principle in our life, we do not have even heathen honesty. So the sincerity in this person speaks to all the rest of the world. Even the heathen poet says, the good hate sin through the love of virtue. You, on the contrary, commit no crime that will tell against you through dread of punishment. Therefore, if a man only avoids doing evil in order to avoid punishment, he has no reward. For a purpose will not mark even the most harmless man as a good heathen. The doing of good through the motives of avoiding punishment, the loss of friends, profit, or reputation, is inadequate. If from these motives one abstains from doing evil and does much good while using all the means of grace, he is still just almost a Christian. If there is no better principle in his heart, he is altogether a hypocrite. Sincerity is necessarily implied in being almost a Christian. There is included a real and hearty desire to serve God and do his will. It is necessarily implied that he has a sincere wish to please God in all things. He seeks to please God in all his conversations and actions. If a man is almost a Christian, his design runs through all the areas of his life. This is the moving principle in his life. It is the cause of his doing good, avoiding evil, and using the ordinances of God. The next question could well be, is it possible that anyone living could go so far as this and be only almost a Christian? What more must one do or be to become altogether a Christian? My answer is that I know from personal experience and the word of God 
that it is possible to go this far, yet be only almost a Christian. I went this far for many years, as I have testified, but was only almost a Christian. I used all diligence to avoid evil and to keep a, keep a clear conscience. I was careful of using my time, using every opportunity to do good to all men. I was constant and careful in using all means of grace, both public and private. I endeavored to be serious at all times and in all places. With God as my witness, I did this with all sincerity, having a real design to serve him. It was my full desire to do his will in all things and to please him who had called me to fight the good fight to gain eternal life. Now my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. All that time, I was only almost a Christian. So you may now ask, what more than this is involved in being altogether a Christian. The love of God must be in the heart of the altogether Christian. His word says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Such a love of God as this fills the whole heart. It takes up all of your affections it fills the capacity of your soul and uses to the fullest extent all the faculties that you have. Anyone who loves God in this manner is continually rejoicing in God his Savior. His delight is the Lord. His Lord is his all. In everything he gives thanks to God. All his desire is for God and to the remembrance of his name. His heart is forever crying out, Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Indeed, what is there to desire besides God? The altogether Christian cannot desire the world or the things of the world. He is crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to him. He is crucified to the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, and the pride of life. He dwells in love, living in God and God in him. He is less than nothing in his own eyes. The next thing implied in being altogether a Christian is the love of his neighbor, Jesus also commanded his followers to love their neighbor as they love themselves. It can then be asked, who is my neighbor? The reply is, every man in the world, every child of God, the father of all spirits, of all flesh, is your neighbor. In no way may we exclude our enemies or the enemies of God from this requirement. Every Christian must love them just as he loves himself and as Christ loves us. 
Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, describes this love to us. This love is long-suffering and kind. It does not have envy. It is not rash or hasty and loving. It is not proud or puffed up. It makes the person with this love the least, the servant of all. Love does not behave itself unbecomingly, but becomes all things to all men. Love seeks not its own way, but only the good of others, that they may be saved. Love is not provoked. It casts all anger from him who has been made perfect in love. It thinks no evil, but rejoices in the truth. This love covers all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Still, there is one thing more that is implied in being almost a Christian. Sorry, in being altogether a Christian. This is the foundation, faith, that cannot be separated from love. Faith is spoken of in excellent ways in Scripture. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believed in his name. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our Lord himself declared, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now let no one deceive himself. Carefully note that any faith that does not produce repentance, love, and good works is not true living faith. Instead, it is a dead and devilish faith. Even the devils believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They know that he accomplished all things of miracles and declared himself to be God. They also know that for our sakes, he suffered a most painful death to redeem us from everlasting death. Even the demons believe that he rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. They know that he will come at the end of the world to judge both the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Yes, these articles of Christian faith, the devils believe, as well as all that is written in the Bible. Yet with all this belief, this faith, they are still devils. They remain in their own damnable condition, lacking the very true Christian saving faith. The right and true Christian faith is not only to believe the scriptures and historical doctrines are true. True faith is much more than that. True Christian faith is also to have a sure and trust confidence in God that by the merits of Jesus, my sins are forgiven, and I am reconciled to God's favor and grace. For this trust and confidence follows a loving heart prone to obey God's commandments. Whoever has this working faith is altogether a Christian. This faith makes it possible to love according to the commandments. It fills the Christian with a love stronger than death, for both God and all mankind. This divine love does the works of God, glorifying in being used for all men. It endures with joy any correction because of Christ. It accepts being mocked, despised, hated, or whatever the wisdom of God permits the malice of men or devils to inflict. Whoever has this faith, this working by love, 
is not almost, but altogether a Christian. Who can agree that these things I have said are true? I ask you to ask yourself about it. With God as your witness, ask your own heart. Am I altogether a Christian? Do I practice justice, mercy, and truth as the rules of heathen honesty require? Do I have the outside of a Christian? Do I have a form of godliness, abstaining from evil and all that is forbidden in God's word? Do I do good with all my might? Do I seriously employ all the means of grace and ordinances of God at every opportunity? Do I do all this with a sincere design and desire to please God in all things? Because if you do, you're still almost a Christian. Most people are aware that they never come even this far. They know they have not even been almost a Christian. Most have not come up to the standard of heathen honesty at least, nor to the outward form of Christian godliness. Much less has God seen a sincerity, a real desire to please him in all the things they do. Few people have ever intended to devote all their words and works, their businesses, studies, and, and pleasures to God's glory. Most have never even desired that what they did would be done in the name of Jesus the Lord. Few have hoped that their acts would be a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Christ. However, supposing that there are good desires behind human actions, do these make a Christian? By no means. Hell is paved with good intentions. The great question still confronts you. Is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? Can you cry out, my God and my all? Do you desire nothing but him? Are you happy in God? Is he your glory, your delight, your crown of rejoicing? Is this commandment written in your heart? He that loves God loves his brother also. Do you then love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love every man, even your enemies and enemies of God, as your own self? Do you love them as Christ loved you? Do you believe Christ loved you and gave himself for you? Do you have faith in the blood sacrifice he made for you? Can you believe the Lamb of God has taken away your sins and cast them as a stone into the depths of the sea? Do you know he has blotted out any charges that were held against you, taking them away, nailing them to his cross? Have you indeed received this redemption through his blood, including the remission of your sins? Does the Holy Spirit witness to you that you are now a child of God? The witness of the world of God is that any man who dies without this faith and love should never have been born. Awake then, you who have been spiritually asleep, and call upon God. Call to him for faith in the day when he may be found. Let him not rest until he gives you this goodness. Call to him until he proclaims to you the name of Jesus. 
In him you can know the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He has mercy for all, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Let no one convince you by any words to stop short of this great prize to which you are called. Call out to Jesus day and night until you know that you believe in him. Remember that while you were ungodly and without strength, he died so that you might be godly and have strength. So pray always and do not faint until you lift up your hand to heaven and say, My Lord and my God. Then you can declare to him that lives forever, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. In this manner, we may all experience what it is to be not almost, but altogether Christians. Through his grace, the redemption that is in Jesus, we will be freely justified with this saving faith. We will know we have the peace of God through Jesus Christ. Then we can rejoice in the hope and glory of God and have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We will have received all this faith and love through the Holy Spirit, which will be given unto us. It is obvious that the grace of God is needed to make us altogether a Christian. Our entire nature must be changed. We must be born anew. Quite a sermon. Spoken, you see, into a situation that still exists today where there are many in churches who seek to live as almost Christians, creating a form of godliness, doing all the right things, honoring the word of God and so on in all the ways that Wesley described but without that new birth, without the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit lives within us to enable all those godly things, but not in the power of our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit who lives within us. So it shouldn't be that the almost Christian is more godly than the altogether Christian. But the altogether Christian knows that in and of himself, he cannot do anything to please God. doesn't matter what he does, he is still not pleasing to God. It's only that new birth, what God has done in redeeming us, in making us acceptable to him, that makes us acceptable to God, makes us one with him. In other words, this is a wonderful description that you cannot be saved by your works. No matter how godly they seem, no matter how hard you're trying to put the scriptures into action in your life, you can never be saved by your works, but only by faith 
in the grace of God. Now, Wesley was part of a group that met in Oxford and also in London called the Holy Club. This was before he experienced the new birth. So he was speaking, as he said in that sermon, out of his experience. These people called themselves the Holy Club because they were intent on living the godly life of which the scriptures spoke. They did all those things that Wesley was talking about in terms of caring for the poor, visiting people in prison, really um, praying for heathens to become Christians, even though, as Wesley came to understand, he was not really a Christian himself. He went to the new states that were developing at that time in America with an intent to be a mission and a missionary there and to take the gospel. He came back sadly disillusioned from that, feeling that he'd completely failed because, of course, what he was doing was um, doing things in his own strength. But it was during that trip that he came into contact with a group that were called the Moravians, who were people that were really born again and preached in a justification, salvation by faith, not by works. And it was as a result of that that Wesley's eyes began to be opened, just as Luther's eyes were opened to the fact that we can only be saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Wesley and his brother, who wrote many of the great hymns, and Whitfield, who was another preacher who saw many, many thousands of people saved in his ministry, before they came to this revelation of what it was to be an altogether Christian, as Wesley puts it, they were part of this holy club, really living what we would say very godly lives. People of prayer, always at the services, and so on. Everything that Wesley described. And yet, without that dynamic of the Holy Spirit, without that new birth. So we can praise God that however, I mean, some of you might have been brought up in churches like I was. I, uh, I was part of a church where nobody was born again. Uh, when, I was, when I first was, was a, a Christian, as, I, as you know, I came to know the Lord by having a direct encounter with him. And you can see there are so many people today within the churches that want to live a good kind of lifestyle and don't want to live as uh, the corruption of the world around. But as Wesley is saying, that doesn't make them Christians. It's only the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ.
However, you see, people like Wesley and the others that were part of that holy club, they understood that once they'd received the Holy Spirit, then they were able to do all those same things. But it was not just an outward form of godliness, but the godliness that came through the activity of the Holy Spirit within them. And it's that that transformed the quality of everything that they did. Before, they were doing it for God. But once they were alive in the Spirit, God was working through them. And so he, was, he wrote this sermon, and preached it, of course, <clears throat> to make it absolutely clear that you can have an outward form of godliness and still not be saved. You can do all these good works and still not be saved. But by the grace of God, we have been saved. And so, by the grace of God, we are to live not with an outward form of godliness, but with true godliness. As Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness to do the things that please God. Everything that we were talking about at the 8 o'clock. See, and as I said then, it's only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only he can work it in us and through us. And so, this, uh, this book, these modern versions, is, is being called The Holy Spirit and Power. Because in the subsequent sermons, he goes on to speak about being born of the Spirit and how, it, how we live in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit in our lives, the witness of the Holy Spirit, what it really means to live a life dedicated to God, and so on. So we can praise God that through his mercy and grace, he has saved us from just having an outward form of religion. And he has come to live within us you see, what Wesley would say is all those things that they were doing in the Holy Club before they had the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were doing for him, for Christ. But once they had received the Holy Spirit, it was Christ in them and Christ working through them. So, praise God, we have been saved. We have been blessed with this precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, God wants not just the outward form of godliness, but the true godliness. 
that comes from allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us to do all that the almost Christian was trying to do to see the outworking of the word of God in his or her life but now seeing the Holy Spirit working the word of God out in us. So when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, doesn't he, in John's Gospel, that he will remind us of everything that Jesus has said. Nearly all prophecy is actually scripture. Nearly all true prophecy is, is scripture. Perhaps 95% true prophecy is the Holy Spirit simply reminding you of the word of God. Prophecy is when God speaks from his heart to your heart, right? It's not predicting the future. Very few prophecies do that. But the prophecy is simply God speaking from his heart to your heart. So you're reading the scripture and a voice, a verse jumps out of the page at you, you know. You've had that experience sometimes. It seems that the written word at that moment becomes the voice of God. Well, that's prophecy. That's the Holy Spirit taking that word and declaring it to you because he knows that's the word you need at that particular moment. See, that's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit within you. So the Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us of the word of God if we're sensitive to his voice. And, you know, he is the still small voice. The Holy Spirit won't shout at you. He won't scream at you. He won't even force you to do what he says. And, you know, it, he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord your God. <laughs> no. He's not a Pentecostal. If you see what I mean. <laughs> uh, but when we used to travel around, you know, and there were open meetings and people prophesying amongst the team and myself, this is something you won't tell anybody else. But we used to play a little game, you know. Amongst ourselves, oh, that's a Pentecostal prophecy. That was a Baptist <laughs> prophecy. That was an Anglican prophecy. <laughs> you could always tell, you know, because our prophecy is imperfect, and the way in which people prophesy is really according to the kind of situation in which they, they serve the Lord. So you can have a bit of humor like that. But the, the real business of prophecy is simply to hear God speak to us, and then, of course, to respond to what he says. The Holy Spirit never speaks to you to be ignored. That's why we had that scripture at the end of the 8 o'clock this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as you did in the days of rebellion. The hard heart says, tomorrow. I will obey tomorrow. I would do it tomorrow or sometime. But no, you see, the heart of love says, God speaks to me today, I do it today. Who am I to put God off? 
and say, no, not today, God, tomorrow. Because you see, he, he would say, well, if I wanted you to do it tomorrow, I would have waited till tomorrow to tell you. But because I've spoken to you today, it's for today. And you see, what Wesley is saying in that sermon is, these almost Christians, they could, they could do all this stuff that seems, as this form of godliness, all seems to be obedience and the outworking of God's word. And yet they were not necessarily being led by the Spirit to do what he was wanting them to do. You could say, well, surely God wants his word to be fulfilled. Yes, but you see, fulfilling his word is believing what Jesus said, that we must be born again. And we must have this gift of the Holy Spirit, that we can't go out and do anything until first we receive the power from on high. So the altogether Christian is trying to serve God, trying to be godly, trying to do everything right, but he hasn't got the power. And what is so important, you see, is what God is doing amongst us this week and what he was doing last night, renewing that gift, pouring fresh anointing into our lives. No matter what you experienced or didn't experience, what you felt or didn't feel last night, when you were prayed for, God imparted to you. He did, because the scripture says, everyone who asks, receives. So you actually receive. Now you need to believe that you have received what you've received. And then you're going to see the outworking of it in your life. You never, never compare your experience with someone else. You know, did you feel anything? What happened to you? Never, never, never go that way. You know, my wife... She's a wonderful believer. She's a woman of prayer. She's a woman of faith. She's a godly woman. <clears throat> and she says to me, you have all the experiences, and I have, well, she used to say, I have none. But she would say, I have few now. And, and uh, you know, I've, but it hasn't made any difference, you see, because she doesn't live by experience. She lives by faith. She doesn't live by feelings, but she believes what the Word of God says, and she acts upon it. Because we don't act according to our feelings, but she is just as much a Christian and godly and, and, and in what she does as, as I am. It's just that, you know, God will give you experiences when you need them. And some of the great encounters I've had with God... I, well, when I have these encounters with God now, my reaction is, praise God, that's wonderful, but what's going to happen now? What is he preparing me for? Because you know, okay, he gives you these encounters like he did people in the Bible, like Moses has his burden, burning bush experience, but look what he had to go and do afterwards. He had to go back to Egypt and so on and so on and so on. God gives us experience when we need experience to prepare us for perhaps some really testing thing that is going to happen in the future. 
But we're not dependent upon experiences. I've, I've, I've been having a wonderful time with the Lord these last days and last weeks, actually. But it hasn't been full of experiences. It's just been full of his word. It's been full of the Holy Spirit taking the word, declaring it to me in a fresh way, and coming to fresh understanding, reminding me of things that I've known in the past and so that they become alive in me in a fresh way. It's not a question of praying and trying to have an experience or a feeling. It's the Spirit and the Word working together in your life. So, praise God when we have experiences, praise God when we don't. Because it's not about experiences. God will give us those when we need them and to encourage. But you know, uh, some of the greatest miracles that I've seen, you could say, well, the receiving of the miracle was an experience, and that obviously would be right. But what, what I'm trying to indicate is that people receive the miracle without having an experience. It just happened. There was no sort of God moment. It was just suddenly God did something. In fact, I've known a lot of people to have been healed without realizing they were healed. Um, I could, I, I won't, I could go into some testimonies, but I, I won't, it's not the time to do that now. Of, of, of people that I've known, prayed for, and they were healed, and it's been some time afterwards before they've had the evidence that they were healed, the medical evidence that they were healed. They didn't actually know that they'd been healed. But when they go back to hospital, perhaps weeks or months, in one case I know, years later, about 10 years later, a guy went to, and was examined. He, he had some condition, I don't know what it was. But they had, they had to give him a full medical. And they said to this, this man, did you know that a few years ago you had bomb, 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 there's all these signs of that in your life, but for some reason it was completely healed, it was cleared up and it hasn't affected your life. Did you know that? And he was reminded, because he wrote to me and told me about this, that ten years ago I had prayed for him, not about this need, but about something else. But God gave me a word. God is healing. I think it was his liver or kidney or something. God is telling me now that he's healing your liver. And he, he went away and he, he wrote to me and he said, I, I'm, I need your forgiveness because when you said that, I thought you were crazy. I thought you missed it altogether. You hadn't even heard God because I didn't know that there was anything wrong. But actually, what that medical um, examination proved several years later is that he'd had that condition and that it had been completely healed. I don't know how the medics could know that, but that's what they told him. So he wrote and said, you know, thank you, because uh, um, forgive me for what I thought about you at the time. But praise God, that's all part of the business. People think all kinds of things about you and probably say all kinds of things about you, but praise God anyway. Hallelujah.
we can't we can't spend time worrying about what other people think. All we've got to do is just be true to God, isn't it? Be true to the Lord. And if people oppose you and speak all manner against you evilly, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for great will be your reward in heaven. So it's always good, you know, when people write and say stuff. I say, oh, hallelujah, thank you, Lord. Now I've got a greater reward in heaven. So praise the Lord. So, has this proved useful? See, what it shows us is it's all the Holy Spirit. We can't create our own form of godliness. No matter how hard we try to serve the Lord, it's got to be the work of the Spirit of God within us. So praise his holy name. In Wesley's life, while he was living with that outward form of godliness, right, he saw very little fruit in his life. But once he had the power of the Holy Spirit, some secular historians say that he was the most significant historical figure in the 18th century in this country because the whole of society was impacted as a result of his ministry. And of course the others that were ministering with him. And he would have seen thousands and thousands saved. That's the difference. You can have a form of godliness and work for God and actually see very little fruit in kingdom terms. Always. Oh, it's good to love the poor and the destitute and to feed the hungry and so on. But a lot of people that are not Christians do that as well. A lot of Muslims, even atheists, do that kind of thing. Because as, as um, Wesley was saying, even the heathen see that it's good to serve other people and to help other people and, uh, and meet the needs of other people. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But of course, now that we have received the Holy Spirit, we don't have to have a form of godliness, but God can work in us and through us to bear much fruit. Amen? And that's what you need to believe for the rest of your life, that all that God is working in you now is going to bear much fruit in the future. The opportunities perhaps for that are limited while you're still uh, a student and, and in this situation. But whatever God leads you into in the future, you are going to be abundantly fruitful. So long as you live the lifestyle of the kingdom so that the kingdom can break out of your life and God can, can use you. It really is, you know, the, that word that um, Jesus spoke to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, I identify so much with that in my own life and ministry. That, you know, if people only 
understood right from the very beginning, even in the revival in, in Luton, if people only understood just how totally weak and useless and inadequate I felt myself. And yet I saw God doing all these great and wonderful things and changing so many lives and it having such a wide effect. And all the time I just felt so utterly weak, useless in myself. And I was, you see, because we are. But God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And it's only when we start getting exalted ideas about ourselves that we get into trouble. And if we think, I'm anointed now, you just watch my smoke, Lord. Hallelujah. I mean, that would be disastrous, wouldn't it? But we remain, you know, weak and useless in ourselves. I'm still weak and useless in and of myself. If I trusted in myself, oh, God help me, I, it would be terrible. But if we remain in that, really it's humility, it's, it's, it's not going around saying I'm weak and useless. It's knowing you're weak and useless, but knowing that God can still work powerfully and effectively through you, so long as your trust is in him. And you see, recognizing your own weakness encourages you to keep your, your trust in him and your dependence upon him. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but uh, you got the message. It's all Jesus. It's all God. It's all the Holy Spirit. And it's not us. It's God working through us. So you can be thankful that you're not an almost Christian. That by his grace you're an altogether Christian. Amen? And by the grace and enabling of the Holy Spirit, you're looking at yourself there. You're looking at Christ in you. You're looking at the anointing that is upon your life. For all that to become reality in you. Amen? And all the lives that are going to be impacted as a result of that. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Come on, let's stand and just give the Lord some thanks. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources by Kingdom Faith and for our other audio and video podcasts, please visit kingdomfaith.com.